You can have your seats. It's a blessing to be with you all, as always, uh, on this morning as we get set to worship the Lord together, or continue to worship the Lord together, I should say. Uh, if you got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 32. We'll get there in a second. As we work our way through uh, this sermon series, and even through this year of biblical literacy for us, uh, we'll be looking at the brother of Moses, whose name is Aaron. So we talked about Moses already in, uh, in this series. He doubted God. He doubted that God could use him uh, in a variety of ways. He even made excuses to God about how he wasn't good enough at speaking. And one of the things that God did in his grace was tell Moses, okay, I'll bring your brother. He's good at speaking. You can give him the words that he will speak uh, the words that I give to you. So this was God meeting Moses where he was, bringing his brother Aaron along. Aaron was uh, a priest that eventually became the great high priest amongst God's people, or the high priest, I should say, not the great high priest, the high priest, I should say. And the high priest had a couple of different responsibilities uh, or maybe categories of responsibilities. Uh, the first one is the high priest would present God to the people. So through teaching, through leading in worship, would, would show uh, the people of God who God was. And also he would present the people to God. So he would kind of offer sacrifices on behalf of the people of God for their forgiveness and for other purposes. So after God's people get freed from Egypt, in Exodus chapter 19, God's people arrive at Mount Sinai, just like God had promised Moses what happened in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, one thing you need to know is that while God was leading his people away from Egypt, he revealed his presence to them in the form of a, of a cloud. So by day, they were being guided. They were going to a place um, that they had not traveled to before. So God was guiding them and reminding them of his presence with this cloud that kind of hovered over them. And when it was time for them to go, it would move forward and they would know we're following God uh, when we follow the direction of this cloud. And at nighttime, this cloud would become a pillar of fire that would light up the sky again, this wonderful reminder to God's people after he had freed them from Egypt that he was with them, um, protecting them and leading them and guiding them as they travel. Remember, at this time in the desert, there's no street lights, there's no sophisticated road system that they have, so God is being kind and gracious and leading his people through that. Now, when they get to Mount Sinai, the cloud comes down and rests on the mountain, and there's this huge display of God's power, and there's lightning and thunder and fire and smoke uh, that kind of consume the mountain. God's letting them know, I am here with you on this mountain. In Exodus chapter 20, Moses goes up on the mountain, well, I should say before that, so in Exodus chapter 19, uh, God makes this covenant with his people. He says, hey, if you will follow me as your God, then I will make you my people. If that's something that you choose to do. And he asked them, is that what you want to do? Do you want to be in this relationship with me where you follow me and submit to me as your God, and I will make you my chosen and cherished people? And they agree. They say, yes, that's what we want to do. And so in the next uh, chapter, as Moses is up on the mountain in, in Exodus chapter 20, God gives Moses what we know today as the Ten Commandments, and he begins, he, he lets them know that he's going to dwell with them forever, he wants to be their people, and he's kind of showing them, this is what it looks like for you to be my people. So essentially, God is showing off who he is to his people. And then in Exodus chapter 32, while Moses is still on the mountain communicating with God, getting the instructions from God for his people, things go off the rails pretty quickly for God's people. Exodus 32, we'll start at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So the people start panicking. 
Moses has been up on the mountain communicating with God for longer than they anticipated. So they're out here at this mountain with potential threats nearby, and they, don't have, and they are wanting some type of a, a tangible maybe point of connection or something that they can look to and say, this is the leader, this is the God that we are trusting in. So they go to Aaron and say, make us gods that will go before us and look after us. We don't feel comfortable about what God is doing right now, so we need something that makes us feel better, something a bit more tangible than this God that we can't fully see. Even though God is showing his presence on the mountain as they speak through this cloud with the fire and the lightning and the smoke and everything that is going on. So God had just rescued them from the most powerful kingdom in the world at, the, at that time uh, without them having to raise a single sword in battle. And that was just maybe a little over a month, maybe about two months ago. He had just done these miraculous things. And now God isn't meeting their expectations of him. And they're ready to replace him with this idol that they're asking Aaron to make. So they go to Moses' brother, Aaron, who was with him, who was with Moses the whole time as he's talking to Pharaoh. And they tell Aaron to make something for them to worship. Now, to understand why this is such a big deal, we kind of need to understand what went on in Exodus chapter 20 as well. So we'll read the first couple commandments. Exodus 20, starting at verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, so again, this is when God's given them the Ten Commandments a few, few chapters earlier. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So first, God starts with a reminder of the way he saved them. And this is a side note, but I think it's worth pointing out. God's salvation and grace towards them preceded his commandments to them. His deliverance preceded his demands. His redemption came before he gave them his rules. So when he's telling them how to follow him, that comes after he has shown them that he is for their good, that he's their protector, their savior, that, he's this, that he has incredible life-changing love for them. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is what I have done for you. I have rescued you. Don't put anyone else over me if you want to be in relationship with me. Then comes the second commandment, verse 4. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. He says, don't be out here making anything that looks like anything in creation and then worshiping that thing. Verse 15, you shall not bow down to them. I mean, sorry, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. We'll get to that word hate in a few moments. He's saying, don't bow down to these things in worship because I am a jealous God. And by jealous, he means that just like someone who is married would not be okay with their spouse putting someone else over them or putting someone else in their place and they would feel jealous. He's saying, if you put something else in my, in my place, I will have anger and jealousy because I'm a jealous God. He's letting them know from the beginning, I don't want anything else in my place. I don't want you substituting anything for me. This is the nature of the exclusive relationship that we have with each other. I am your God, period. You are my people. You hold me above all others, and I will cherish you as my chosen people. You don't substitute me for anything. So to be specific, commandment number one is don't worship other gods. 
The true and living God alone is supreme. Do not put anything above him. Command number two, God says, don't make any images or idols of me. So command number one is about worshiping the right God. Command number two is about worshiping the right God the right way. For many at this time, many believe that these images, these idols that that they would make were kind of their connection point between them and whatever deity they believed in whatever false God they believed in. So they they saw them as like a gateway between heaven and earth, so to speak. They would make this idol, this image, into something that showed or symbolized what they understood that God to be like. More on that when we get to the kind of image that they made to represent uh, the true God. But basically, many believe that if you performed well enough for this God through the different rituals or whatever it is that they that they understood to communicate devotion to that God, then when they would go to this idol and plead, so for example, if they were worshiping the quote-unquote rain God, then they would do whatever rituals they believed the rain God wanted them to do. And they thought if they did that well enough, then the rain God will bless them with rain for their crops and everything like that. But they would go to this idol to seek what they were truly looking for. At the end of verse 5, God shows us that if they break these two commandments, it shows that they actually hate him. Now, why is that? Because essentially, as we'll see later in Exodus 32, to do this, to to create this, this image and then worship it as if it is God, to make some kind of idol as the image that you use to worship God, is to reduce God down. At bare minimum, it begins to emphasize maybe some aspects of his character more than others, but generally speaking, it is is a way of, of reducing God down. Oftentimes, reducing God down to the parts of him that you like or the parts of him that you prefer and seeming to ignore or not acknowledge the other parts of who he is. See, the Bible gives many images to show us who God is and what God is like. The Bible calls Jesus the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. In Revelation, we see him as a warrior. God shows his presence to his people in Exodus and through Deuteronomy in this cloud and this pillar of fire. In some of Jesus' parables, God is known as a king or a ruler. See, God reveals himself in many different ways. So to pick a specific image and say this is what God is like is reductionist. It reduces him down. God says, no, I want you to know me as I am and worship me for all of who I am. To not accept and embrace all of who God is because he wants a genuine relationship with us. So to not accept him as he truly and fully is, God shows us is to hate him. It's to not truly want him. It's not truly be about him, but rather likely to be about ourselves and our own desires when we come to him. All right, so what does all this have to do with Aaron? All right, we'll begin to find this out in verse 2. So this is what Aaron does when they ask Aaron to make these gods for them after they've lost faith in Moses, verse 2. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. When God freed his people from Egypt, the Egyptians gave them, as God told them what happened, gave them a lot of gold, a lot of precious metals. This would have been very helpful for them as a new nation to strengthen their economy by allowing them to be able to trade and get things they wanted and needed from others. But Aaron tells the people to take all that stuff off and give it to him. They do so, and he uses the thing that God blessed them with 
to do the thing that God told them not to do. That's a whole sermon or two for a different Sunday. Today, we got to focus on how they used it, but that's a, that's a whole other sermon. Today, I want us to focus on the calf that they made or that Aaron made. See, in the ancient Near East at that time, a bull was a symbol of strength and power. And if you think about the position the Israelites were in, this is exactly the type of God that it seems like they would want. Remember, Moses, their leader, is up on the mountain, and he's delayed for whatever reason. They don't know what has happened to him. So if you're them, you don't know what's going to happen to you. There are threats all around you. There are kingdoms with mighty armies that are around them. And so they begin to question God and his plan. God's not answering on the timeline that they wanted him to. God's not doing the things that they expected him to do. So likely they're feeling weak and powerless and vulnerable. So they want something that communicates strength in them, something they can look to to find strength in their vulnerable state. And yes, God defeated Egypt, but they don't have cities with big walls like many of the nations and kingdoms had to protect them from invaders. They don't have a military with chariots and trained horses and decades and decades of fighting experience. They don't even have a king that was elected because of his ability to lead men in battle. They don't have these things that the other nations have, so they have reason to turn to something to look for strength. But also it's important to know who else looked to a calf as an idol that they looked to for strength. Egypt did. Egypt worshipped a golden calf. The nation that they just left, the nation that God just overthrew, worshipped a golden calf. See, God had gotten Israel out of Egypt, but it seems there was a little Egypt left in Israel. If you think about it, Israel's only been free for a couple of months. They've lived in Egypt surrounded by these false gods for 400-something years. They've been inoculated by their environment for so long to where even after God shows up and shows how mighty and powerful he is through all these miraculous signs, through all these terrible plagues, it's not enough. They still went back to the idol worship that they had participated in before. And notice what the people said about this calf that was made of gold, verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand again and fashioned it with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods. O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt? They didn't just say that these were gods. They said that these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. They were somehow trying to worship the true God and make him like this calf at the same time. They, they have made a graven image and they are not worshiping the true God in the way that God had told them to. When Aaron saw this, verse 5, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That term Lord there in the, in the Hebrew is God's covenant name, Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Aaron is saying that we're going to use this thing to worship the one true God. Aaron isn't just saying, here are some gods to worship. He's saying, these are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. These are the gods that have saved you. This is who brought you out. God, you're not meeting my expectations right now. It would really be better if you did things my way instead of doing things the way that you do things. 
They were, they, were, they were fashioning, they were trying to fashion the one true God into who they desired for him to be, how they desired for him to be behaving or responding differently than the way that he was responding. You see, they loved the fact that God had rescued them and saved them from slavery. But they weren't really liking what they were seeing from God in the moment. So they wanted a way to still be able to worship God and acknowledge the fact that they were saved from Egypt by him while still trying to make God into who they wanted him to be. They loved his saving grace. But after being saved, they started seeing some things that they disagreed with. And their response was to attempt to make God into what they would expect or desire God to be. So they weren't at a place where they were just like, you know what, forget this God. Let's go worship this false God. No, they're at this point of, I like some of the stuff about God, so I want to keep the stuff that I like, but let's make some edits here and there. Let's use a filter on God. Let's make sure he only does the stuff that we like or want for him to do. Brothers and sisters, John chapter 4, verse 24 says this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth in the truth of who he is, as he has revealed himself in his word. We worship him in the truth of who he is, not who we prefer to think of him as. See, Aaron was in this situation where he had a decision to make. Is he going to lead God's people to trust God and worship God in truth? Or was he going to choose to allow the people of God to see God in a way that isn't who the true God actually is? Is he going to act as an ancestor and leave a lasting impact of leading God's people to trust him in times of uncertainty? Or will he cave and give in and be complicit in the people of God, not truly worshiping God in the way that he demands? Aaron chose the route that left awful, lasting pain and hurt for God's people. Let's keep reading verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God's people showed disdain for their God. They showed that they didn't want him for who he was and that they didn't trust him. They showed that they preferred the cropped and edited, filtered version of God. So God tells Moses, stand back because I'm going to consume them in my anger. Stand back so I can remove this people from the earth and I'll create a new nation just from you, Moses. But Moses intercedes for the people, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses says, God, remember your word. 
God, remember your name is on the line here. People won't see you as the glorious, loving, and faithful God you truly are if you do this. Now, I want to make a disclaimer just to make sure we understand. God is saying this, I mean, Moses is saying this to God, but even if God had gone through with what he said he was going to do, he was still going to remain faithful to his promise because if God would have started through Moses, he was still a, a child of Israel and the nation and the promise that he made to God's people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have still been carried out. But there are many who God wanted to come to know him that would have taken this the wrong way is the case that Moses makes. That had God eliminated all but Moses, Moses says that that would have been a stumbling block to people truly knowing what God is about. So in verse 19, we find Moses going down the mountain to the camp where the people are participating in this awful form of false worship. And Moses is furious. This is verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that had been made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire. Now came this cat. Verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had chosen, had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother, his companion, and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The people of God had broken the covenant that God had made with them in Exodus chapter 19. They had decided not to worship God and follow him like they promised that they would. A just and fair punishment would have been for God to cut them off completely and have nothing else to do with them. The covenant had been broken because of their rebellion. Because the just and righteous penalty for sin is death, God would have been just to eliminate them all as he said he was going to do. I think many people, we look at passages like this and we say things like, see, the God of the Old Testament is just so angry. No grace, no mercy, just anger and wrath. And I say that that position can only be held by those who don't believe that their sin against the holy God truly deserves death and condemnation, like the Bible says. You have to have a certain belief system to hold that position, a belief system that conveniently allows you to believe that your sin is not as bad as God says it is. Only those who hold that position can view God that way. They disagree with God when his word says in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death. 
They don't believe that God is just when he tells us in Ezekiel 18 that the soul who sins will die. Many choose not to look at God punishing his people. In our minds, many of us, we edit out the parts of Scripture where we see punishment and condemnation and death because of sin. I submit to you that for many in our culture today, our reason for breaking the second commandment isn't that Moses is up on a mountain and we're uncomfortable with how long he's up there. But I believe for many of us, it's that God's wrath and condemnation and judgment against our sin that causes us to make a golden calf. It's that we don't like what we see in certain parts of the Bible. We, like the Israelites, want to embrace the idea of his love and grace and salvation and the fact that his deliverance precedes his demands and that his redemption comes before his rules, as well we should. But we don't feel comfortable worshiping a God whose anger is so strong and evident against sin. And family, when we want to present God to ourselves and to others as a God of grace and love and justice, while being afraid to be honest that he's also a God of anger and wrath, we are presenting a golden calf and calling it Yahweh. We're presenting a false God and saying, this is the God who saved us and brought us out of Egypt. And that is incredibly problematic because if there is no punishment for sin, then there really is no grace in the salvation that we proclaim. His grace is mind-blowing and amazing because of the condemnation and death that our sin righteously deserves. If sin didn't warrant a punishment, then us being saved from the punishment of sin means nothing. But if every single sin that you and I have ever committed is a condemnable offense against God worthy of death and condemnation, if every sinful lust and every sinful action if every sinful decision to act when we shouldn't have acted or every sinful decision to not act when we should have acted, if every single thing that we've ever done deserves punishment and condemnation, then we have received a grace and a mercy and a forgiveness that is beyond anything we can fathom. Then we can see that he is indeed lavishing on us grace upon grace every moment of our lives. Then we can see that literally every breath, every moment of our lives is a gift of God's grace because we deserve death because of our sin. Family, we have no salvation if there's nothing to be saved from. God's forgiveness is shallow and insignificant if we haven't done anything that deserves punishment. Family, as we're looking at the year 2024 as our year of biblical literacy for us, and we are intent on helping you to understand the Bible. If you're going to be reading the Bible on your own, you need to know how to understand and reflect on and deal with passages where we see God's wrath and anger against sin, because there are many of them in several different books of the Bible. So I got one main point, one main tip for you. Here's a Bible study tip for you when you see passages where God's wrath against sin is on display. The tip is let God's wrath remind you of his grace. Let God's wrath remind you of his grace. I know that when many people see a lot of people dying because of God's anger against sin, many of us don't know how to handle these passages. Maybe they make us feel uncomfortable. Many of us, we mainly just see God's anger and his wrath, but family, when I look at it, I see God's grace, and I want to tell you why. Every soul that turned away from God to that golden calf that was spared was a recipient of immense grace. 
The fact that the cloud of God's presence remained with them after this is an incredible grace being shown to them. The fact that they were still God's people and were able to enjoy his protection and grace day in and day out after this happened is a testament to his immeasurable grace and mercy and forgiveness. The death of those who fell by the sword that day is a picture of what many more deserved. Let God's wrath remind you of his grace. And if you really want to study the Bible well and understand it for what it truly is, don't just do that with the Old Testament, but bring that same energy to the New Testament as well. Bring those same lenses to see God's grace in the midst of God's wrath into the New Testament when we see the wrath of God poured not, not only out on sinners, but onto God himself, the sinless one, where Christ became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God where he was condemned on the cross and absorbed the condemnation that sinners like me and sinners like you deserve. Let us look to the cross and see that his grace is on display as his wrath is being poured out. You see, for the Christian, reminders of God's wrath are pictures of what we've been saved from. Every picture that you see of God's anger and wrath against sin in the Bible should serve as a reminder to you of what you deserve and yet have been saved from. They are reminders of the redemption that we have received. And that is one of the glorious reasons why seeing Christ for who he is keeps us from committing the sin that Aaron committed because unlike the idols that are forbidden in Exodus chapter 20, Colossians chapter 125 says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. This is why, this is one of the reasons why all other images and the idols that they were making, that they were crafting with their hands, fall short because they don't give a full display of who God is. But God sent one. His name is Jesus Christ. The Bible says, is the image of the invisible God. So when we want to know what he is like, when we want to know who he is, we look to Jesus. We don't craft something with our hands to try to, to, try to see and determine and remember who God is. We look to Jesus, the image of the invisible God. We don't need another image or a golden calf or anything that would reduce God down to whatever we think he's like. He's already sent us his image. See, all of humanity is made in his image, but Christ is the image of the invisible God. And when we see him for who he is in the word of God, we see that God, the one true God, all of his attributes included, is beautiful and glorious for who he is unedited, unchanged, unfiltered. In Christ, we see that God Almighty, we see God Almighty in his power, his strength, his grace, his justice, his mercy, his righteousness, his anger, his love, all of who he is is everything that we need. We don't need to edit him. You don't tame the Lion of Judah. You don't try to make him your pet when he's your God. No, the Lion of Judah, you just let him roar and you let everyone respond to him the way that they do, according to who he is. You let Jesus speak for himself and we don't apologize for who he is and what he does. We unapolog unapologetically remember and recall that we are his witnesses. We're reporters, we're not editors. We just report what we know to be true. We don't change it to make it more palatable for others. Because when you know you got the truth, you just let the truth speak. When you know you have what's true, you just let it speak for itself or what it truly is. 
Family, let us not try to fashion an image of God. Let us not try to make God look the way that we desire for him to look. Let's not try to shave off the parts of God that make us uncomfortable. No, let us look to the image of the invisible God himself. And when we see him, let us be reminded that he is enough as he is. He is enough. He is who he should be. He is exactly who we need. He is more glorious than anyone else. He is holy and set apart and different from us, which means, yes, there might be some things about him to make us uncomfortable, but he is who he is, and we are witnesses, and we share who he is with others. Without trying to round off the edges, let us not look to fashion an image of God. Let us look to Christ, the image of the invisible God. And when we see him, let us be reminded that he is enough, which means... We are only doing harm if we try to add anything to him or take anything away from him. From him, He is who he is, and that is exactly what we need him to be. Family, y'all pray with me.